Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to HeyYA Extra Credit. This short-form podcast will hit your feeds every week opposite the main HeyYA show, and the focus is on a separate Norma Klein book in each episode. Klein was an early YA writer doing work similar to that of Judy Bloom in the 1970s and 1980s that pushed boundaries and dove into topics so few others were approaching at the time. I'm your host, Kelly Jensen. You can get the complete schedule of books to be discussed in the show notes. Today's episode will focus on Norma Klein's No More Saturday Nights, which is one of the last books that she wrote, and this one came out in 1988, um, October 1988, I believe, and um, it's the first one that I've discussed on the show that features a male main character. I'm going to read the Kirkus description of this one, in part because I... I, um, disagree with some of the words used to describe the book. And then I will dive in. This is going to be a shorter episode than some of the more recent ones, um, in part because I was not a huge fan of this book. Um, and, and weirdly, as I read a lot of reviews of this one, so many people were huge fans of this particular title. And I, um, I, I'm curious what those readers would think going back and reading now. Um, I think that it, maybe doesn't hold up well. Um, I'll get to that in a second. So the review from Kirkus reads, in this funny, humane story, an unwed, unwed father fights to keep his baby and then to cope with the responsibility. Young Mason may be the product of a brief high school fling, but Tim, 18, won't give him up for adoption, nor is he willing to marry. He takes the mother to court and, against all expectations, wins custody. As if learning to care for a baby isn't challenge enough, Tim has a scholarship to Columbia and leaves for New York City shortly after Mason's birth. The author really stacks the deck. The naive small-town teen, only a child, his mother years dead, faces the Big Apple with both a new baby and a grade point average to nurse. On the other hand, Tim does have a modest cash reserve, a circle of uncomprehending but sympathetic acquaintances, and a previously remote father who is suddenly converted into an eager, supportive baby tender. As usual in a Klein novel, the conversation sounds real, emotions are never simple or unmixed, and life's obstacles turn out to be surmountable. The role reversal is complete. Tim and his father show much more, quote-unquote, maternal instinct than any of the women in their lives. But the satire stays gentle. The author demonstrates that the problems and rewards of parenthood are universal. Tim faces the consequences of his choice with courage and usually good cheer. Readers looking for a soapier version or soapier view of unwed fatherhood, however, might find Ruby's What Do You Do in Quicksand more satisfying. So as the description notes, um, this is a satire, or so it's 
mention to be. I didn't quite find it to be a satire. Um, a little bit in terms of what we see with Tim's father and with some of the discussion around gender roles in the book. Uh, but I, I didn't find it particularly funny or humorous. And um, in, in some ways, I found it frustrating as, as a reader. Um, first and foremost, we get Tim. He's 18. He lives in a small town in Massachusetts, and he has been in a short-term relationship with this girl named Cheryl, who becomes pregnant. And Cheryl wants to have the baby. There's, um, there's a short discussion about possibility of abortion. It comes up, Tim is in support of abortion um, for anybody who would like to get abortion, but he never pushes Cheryl to have one and Cheryl isn't interested. What she wants to do instead is to give the baby up for adoption and she has found this couple that she knows through a family friend who would like to adopt the baby. But from Tim's perspective, he is calling it selling the baby. Um, He has taken... Cheryl to court because he wants custody of this child and he wants to raise this baby by himself because he's he's really deeply upset about the idea of this baby being sold to a couple that neither of them know. Um, using the word sold here is is what they use in the in the book and um, early on we get this court scene uh, where Tim and his lawyer are at the court trying to fight against Cheryl and her lawyer um, to get custody. And it comes up that the Sladell family, they're the ones who, uh, they're the couple that wants to adopt this child, are giving Cheryl money for, quote, hospital expenses. And they're giving her $10,000. And Tim's lawyer argues that $10,000 is clearly selling the baby because a hospital stay does not cost anywhere near that amount, uh, which that is pretty fascinating to, uh, to read by today's standards and, and the, uh, medical, medical industrial complex we currently live in. But, um, the judge sides with Tim and his lawyer and he will be taking full custody of the child when the child is born. Um, at this point, the adopt, the potential adoptive parents are sort of shot out of the story and, and the story now focuses on when the child is born and Tim takes custody. So Tim is going to Columbia in the fall and he's going to take this baby with him. And we see him go to the city, staying at this really, really cheap hotel as he tries to find a place to live. And um, lo and behold, he finds a place. And it's a, a nice apartment near Columbia that is currently rented by three women, three um, college students, all female. And when he goes and interviews for the spare room, he doesn't bring up his son until late into the interview, and suddenly you see the girls' personalities come out. Uh, two seem pretty okay with this. They want to give it a trial run, and the third, Vivian, is she's kind of cold. She's kind of off-putting. She's very adamant about needing to protect her time and her ability to study. Um, she is, I believe, pre-med, so she knows she's going to be studying a lot. Um, and she is very not on board with having a baby in this place. Uh, and I can't blame her. I mean, I'm thinking as soon as I hear this, like how it would be to be a college student who's already juggling studies with living in 
an apartment that's shared with two people who you get to know, but they're still essentially strangers. And then suddenly having a baby as well. Um, I see where the satire comes in here in terms of what sort of comes up in terms of gender roles. So um, Tim is very, very adamant that these girls will not become babysitters. They will not become mothers to his child, um, that he'll still be getting daycare, that they will have no role in taking care of this kid at all. And it's it's a point of contention with this father who um, his father is kind of terrible the whole time. And his father is this big socialist, or, or so he claims to be a socialist. And as we come to find out, his father is very, very stuck in traditional gender roles and traditional beliefs about the roles women and men play. He's very against Mason being a single father and taking care of this child. And he's really pressured Mason numerous times um, about why he didn't propose to Cheryl, the baby's mother, and why he never thought that marriage would be an option here. Um, Mason is pretty free-minded about this. He doesn't, he doesn't want that. He doesn't believe Cheryl would be interested in it. Lo and behold, later in the story, when we revisit Cheryl, uh, she is engaged to a much older man and, uh, Tim sort of revisits this, this belief he has about his baby's mother. That's the general premise of the story. And, uh, I, if anything, this book was a reminder of how few stories there are about teen fathers who are single parents or, or even in um, relationships, healthy or not, where there's a baby involved, uh, which is not unrealistic, but it's it's not seen very often, particularly in YA. And so I give I give big kudos to that. The problem I really had with this book is that we never see Tim have a relationship with his son. Um, it's very much about how Tim is sort of surviving and how he is managing to keep up this grade point average he has to keep for his scholarship, how he is navigating these roommate relationships, and oh, Vivian, the one who is very, very skeptical about having this baby, suddenly she and Mason are, or she and Tim are a thing, and Mason is a uh, you know, he's there, but he is not something that Vivian is concerned about with their relationship, and he's not something that Tim is concerned about in the relationship. Um, it was a very convenient relationship for them to have. It was very convenient as a way for Vivian's personality to sort of be given more depth, but I really feel that was at the expense of getting to know the relationship between the father and the son, which is is really the catalyst in the heart of this particular book. Um, the other thing that bothered me is something that I've I've mentioned numerous times in in the Klein books, in that the descriptions of bodies and and larger bodies in this book is is not good. It's not good at all. Um, every female character in here, with the exception of either Cheryl or Vivian or other women that Tim has a positive view of, they're described as plump. And that's the word used over and over again. I cannot even describe how many times I wrote WTF or highlighted the word plump in the margins of this book, which is, um, oh, one, one is also chunky. 
uh, I should be fair, we, we get plump and chunky. And it's such a weird and jarring description to come up. And I think it really speaks to this larger weakness in, in Klein's work, especially in her later work. This is, again, one of her later books where bigger bodies are just disparaged throughout. And, and it makes little sense. Um, for a while, I was thinking it could be this image consciousness that young people who grew up in such a big city that is image conscious, like New York City, um, particularly in in wealthier parts of the city, they they have this mentality about that, that this might just be a thing that's common and, and not really particularly checked in the books. But Tim comes from a small town, and Tim talks frequently about how... Um, Small towns have this particular mentality that you know everybody's business, that, you know, you can sneeze and the neighbor two houses over brings you Kleenex. And um, so I I don't buy that as an excuse. And uh, so that that for me as a reader was really troubling. And it's really troubling to see come up over and over again uh, without any explanation or clarification or context. And um that really stuck with me. And I think it stuck with me in this particular book because there was this real lack of relationship between Tim and his son that I just, I really desperately wanted. Um, that said, when we do get the moments of Tim talking about fatherhood, about about taking care of his son, they're really great. And that's, that's why I really wanted to see more of them. Um, there's this particularly good paragraph I'm going to share. It's about halfway through the book. And um, it goes, I felt like a Jekyll and Hyde father at times. There were moments when Mason could be so engaging, when he'd suddenly figure something out, like how to turn over. And then he'd look at me with such absolute wonder and delight that it would all seem worth it. And other times I'd wake up, see him screaming in the crib and want to go over and smother him with a pillow just to get some extra sleep. I put in the comments, welcome to parenthood. Um, moments like that, I think, are what left me feeling disappointed in this book. And that we didn't get more of that because it really, really, I think, got to the heart and the challenges of, of being a teen father and trying to balance all these things. We got more, I think, discussion of a potential sex life between Tim and Vivian than we did about Tim and his son. And um, Vivian herself is quite interesting um, outside of of the sexual relationship she has with Tim insofar as I think that Vivian might have had a mental illness and it's not addressed um, in a whole lot of depth here. And I again, I wish that it had been. It's um, there there's a moment where she's talking with Tim and talking about just sort of, all the challenges she has, why she puts on this really rough um, exterior. And she says, she's talking about her mother. Her mother uh, died when she was young. And she talks about how she's scared that she might end up like her mother. I, di I didn't mention it, and I should, but her mother um, died by suicide. And, and Vivian's really worried that she might as well. And she says, I couldn't say my father, but it wasn't really. She was upset with when she met him. This is her mother. 
She'd had a tormented life, ups and downs, mental hospitals, drugs, therapy. I guess that was the problem. Nothing seemed to work for her. She had this feeling she was doomed, and it really scared me because sometimes I've thought that about myself. But then I always think, no, it's a matter of will- willpower. And at least she wasn't my mother, so it's not like there's any genetic thing. Sorry, that's her stepmother who died by suicide. Um, there's a lot to unpack in that, and and it's not. There's it's not unpacked. Mason responses with responds with silence, and and um, doesn't doesn't challenge any of that. Doesn't dig into it. Um, Vivian expresses this fear that by nature of growing up with somebody who struggled with mental illness, that she herself might as well. But then she says something along the lines of, you know, it's a matter of willpower. It's in quotes, this, it's a matter of willpower. Um, so we don't know if, if she actually believes that or if that's a thing she's saying to, to comfort herself. Um, I don't know if I have anything brilliant to say about that, except that that's, that's a lot. And I, I feel like it, it says a lot about Vivian, but then it's, we just don't, we don't get enough. Um, and I feel like maybe that's the big takeaway here. We don't get enough. And I, I wanted, I wanted so much more from this book. I wanted more depth in the relationships, more depth of the characters. Um, this is meant to be a book. I think that feels good seeing a teen father who succeeds because ultimately he does succeed. He's able to get good grades. He finds a place to live. He finds a support system that he didn't think he would ever see. And yet we never know why it is he really wants to take care of his son. Um, beyond the fact that he believes his son is going to be sold by, by Cheryl. Um, we don't see what this relationship means to him as he really, um, discovers who his son is, discovers who he is to his son, discovers who he is as a father. Um, I'm saying um a lot. I realize that in this because it's it's so much thinking and um, disappointment, too, that there wasn't more. I, I feel like after after breaking up, which I talked uh, about in the last KYA Extra Credit with Tom Ryan, this is such a disappointment because there is so much to work with and it just... It, didn't come through. And and further, this one had an ending that left me wanting really, really bad. Um, we discover that Cheryl is engaged. Um, so Tim comes home to uh, his small town at Christmas vacation, so about four months into the school year, and he comes home and discovers that Cheryl, his uh, the woman who teen girl. I shouldn't call her a woman. She's a teen girl. Um, she is engaged to an older man who's in his thirties. He owns, uh, he's the son of the pharmacy owner where, uh, she works, the pharmacy where she works. And so that's a big, big news bomb. In four months, she's gotten engaged to this older man. And, uh, so that just, we're just kind of left with that. He doesn't process it. He doesn't dig into it. He doesn't, uh, really reconsider, like what that might mean in terms of his relationship with her and his own relationship with his son. And then also at the same time, Vivian is coming to visit him on Christmas break and she's going to meet um, his father and, and see where he came from. But we just end with that. We just end with that. We end with these two different relationships, four months uh, into the school year, four months separation time and also then we see um 
his father just doting on his son, which is is a delight to see because his father is a very difficult and frustrating character in the book. Um, but but that's it. And uh, again, it left me wanting. It really, it left me wanting for more from this book, but also it left me really wanting for more in general in in the YA world and particularly how teen fathers uh, just aren't there and how they're not portrayed. Um, I love, love, love Elizabeth Acevedo's um, With the Fire on High, which came out earlier this year, and it portrays a, a Latina main character who she has a child and lives with her grandmother. It's a brilliant book. She's a teen mom. She's also got her own life, but we see her relationship with her daughter play out really, really well in the page. And Klein's book here makes me want to see something like that but with a father at the main, um, at, at the center of the story and, and what it's like to grow up as a teen father, whether he has full custody or shared custody. And um, I guess that's my big, big takeaway is that I wanted more and I want for more now as well. I think I'll end there. I would love if any of you have read this and uh, revisited it. I'd love to hear what your reactions to this are. You can email me. It's Kelly at RiotNewMedia.com. And I, I'm just curious. Um, I, I read some reader reviews of those who loved it. And uh, a lot of them had the theme of just never having seen a teen boy being a parent and, and how that was so... Um, huge. So I, I'd love to hear about that. I'd love to hear too, anybody who has been reading along or has picked up one of the two of these books, your thoughts on how Klein has really done disservice to larger bodies and, and what that might mean. It, as somebody who was a child in the eighties, I can't speak to what the cultural conversation was at that time about different bodies. So I'm curious a bit about that, if there's some context to be had there, particularly because she was so progressive on, on many other things. Um, in this book, there is a, a lesbian main character, not main character, she's a secondary character, but for Mason, her sexuality is like no big deal. He doesn't think it's a big deal at all. He even says that at one point when his father, who is this, you know, supposed socialist who is accepting of everything, is really down on um, Jolie having a girlfriend. Um, things like that were were so well done in her books, and yet bodies remain this area that we're okay to to belittle and disparage. I think um, this is a good point to say next HeyYA Extra Credit will be with Brandy Colbert, and we're going to talk about Mom, the Wolfman, and Me, which might be Klein's most well-known book, and it's one of her earlier works, and there was a film made of it, too, which I'm going to see if I can track down and watch uh, to talk about with Brandy as well. Thank you all for tuning in to HeyYA Extra Credit. And again, we'll see you next week for the main podcast and then in two weeks for that special Extra Credit edition with Brandy. And the book we're talking about, as I said, was Mom, the Wolfman, and Me. And I'd love, love, love any thoughts you have about uh, No More Saturday Nights in particular. Um, if you've got them, you can email me, I, kelly at riotnewmedia.com. And I will talk to you again next week with Eric and then again in two weeks with Brandy. Bye.